We're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time in the book of Luke today. Um, we're going to look at Luke 9, verses 1 through 45. And I know y'all heard 1 through 45, and y'all got scared for a bit. We, <laughs> it's okay. I'm not going to lie to you. We might be here for a minute. No, I'm um, who in here likes to travel? I like to travel. Travel abroad and travel in places. Uh, one of the things I love about traveling, I love to travel. Me and my wife have had the honor and privilege to go to some pretty cool places. And one of the things I love about traveling is meeting new people. Anybody like meeting new people? What is something uh, that when you meet someone new that they might ask you? Where are you from? That's, that's a good way more. What? I, speak up. Y'all got to talk. I like call and response. What's your name? What's your name? What you here for? What you here for? You know what you're here for? What you say? That's it. That's the occupation. I'm going to be honest. What do you do? What do you do? I hate that question. I hate that question because, like, for me, as a preacher, like, I follow the Lord, and he makes provisions for what I do. So it's always like a weird conversation for me because because ministry to me is less about doing and it's more about following. Now, 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 let me tell you something. Ministry involves a lot of doing. I know y'all looking at me like Calvin don't do nothing. I gonna never go to his church. No, no, that's not not what I'm saying. Ministry has a lot of doing, but our doing is dictated by our following. And that is countercultural. Everything in society is about doing. We do stuff to get stuff done. Doing is tied to identity. If I was to ask you just a quick question, uh, who, who, is, who is LeBron James? You might say the GOAT. I know. I get it. Yeah. But what, what, what is he? Who is he? Basketball player. Who is Terrence Crawford? Somebody with fight fans. Who is he? He's a boxer. Undisputed. This is what we do, right? We identify who he is by what he does. But the kingdom of God is the opposite. I love to call the kingdom the upside down kingdom because it is direct opposite of what the culture is. It's not focused on what we do, it's focused on whom we follow. Not just following anything, but following the one being in all of the universe that can give us purpose and identity simply because of his love. I find Luke 9 very intriguing. It's the reason I love this chapter. The reason why I love this chapter is because Jesus is looking at his disciples, and he's like, you guys want to do stuff. You guys are excited about doing. But I'm not 100% sure you know who I am. I don't think you understand who you are following. That's why the disciples are often uh, shocked by Jesus' statements. Eating my flesh, drinking my blood. I'm going to hate my mother and brother, father and sister. What? They're shocked. 
I think that we, if I include my, I'm including myself in this, is that we're often shocked by statements that Jesus makes because we're not sure of who we're following. You say, okay, I don't know what he's doing in my life. This, this decision doesn't make that much sense. We're focused on doing, but we don't understand who we follow. So Jesus tells the disciples, them, me, we, you, and us, when you truly know who you're following, your doing makes perfect sense. And so we're going to look at chapter 9. It's actually funny. It's easy to look at chapter 9 and see it as like a collection of random stories. Like, like people, like, like I, I, I'm, you could literally preach a whole sermon on each of these sections. You could, you, you get to the point of, you say, the transfiguration, the feeding the 5,000, pick up your cross and die daily, commission them. And you'll be like, man, I can, you, you can camp on each of those sections for a whole sermon. But you don't realize when you understand the context of the whole chapter, they're all tied into one major story. Jesus makes three identity statements in these 45 verses. And God makes three identity statements. The first identity statement that comes out is who do the kings and the crowds say that Jesus is? Then he says, who do the crowds and the disciples say that Jesus is? And then finally, we get to hear from who does God the Father say that Jesus is? And so I want you to repeat after me. Say, doing is tied to following. Before we do, we must learn to follow. So let's we got a lot to cover, so let's just go in. Let's look at Luke 9, 7 through 9. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it really quickly, and I'm going to just need you to listen a little bit quicker, okay? Um, verse 7. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all these, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that the one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. In this section, we are introduced to a man by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch just simply means it's a combination of two words, for and rule, meaning he ruled a fourth of Judea. He is the son of Herod the Great. Now, you'll see Herod constantly in the Gospels, but there's, a couple, there's two Herods. And we get that confused. Herod the Great was his father who tried to kill Jesus at his birth. And this is his son who rules over a fourth of Judea. And when you read it, it says that he's confused. The text actually says he's perplexed in hearing the rumblings throughout his region that a man of great power had come and was talking about a kingdom that is coming to overthrow and take the world over. And now this is concerning because he's like, listen, this is my region. And if somebody's talking about a coming kingdom, it can't happen in my watch. In my area, we got to keep an eye on this dude, Jesus, because we can't have somebody talking about overthrowing a kingdom in our area. So Herod is keeping a close eye on Jesus, but he's also intrigued by Jesus. He's also uh, concerned and he's marveling at little things that he does. And the people report back to him three things. They say he's either John the Baptist prophet Elijah, a prophet of old. And what does Herod do? Herod immediately dismisses John the Baptist. He like, listen, I killed that dude. Like he was, uh, uh, he was hating on me, trying to marry my brother's wife. And so I did it away from him. There's no way in the world that can be John the Baptist. But why is he still intrigued by him? Why is he perplexed by him? 
Mark and Matthew's account gives us a clue. They both state something that Luke doesn't. And they use the term supernatural powers, say miracles. This is the one thing I love about studying the Bible is that as we get stuck at a point, we actually have the whole story because we can skip to the end and kind of get some clues toward the end. This we actually get the clue of why Herod was so perplexed and so intrigued by Jesus. If you go to Luke chapter 23, verse eight, he actually tells us it says the text says this. He had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. Hmm. In Herod's response, we see the motives of the unbelieving world. He sees Jesus as intriguing enough. He sees Jesus as interesting enough to pursue. He sees Jesus as memeable, quotable, but not good enough to follow. You notice that he's intrigued by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, but he doesn't actually meet Jesus all the way until right before he dies. What draws him most to Jesus is the miracles and powers. What can Jesus do for him? When we look at those who don't know Jesus, Jesus is intriguing enough. Jesus is cool enough. And we cool to accept him on the surface, but he has no authority in our lives. And then when most people do actually seek Jesus out, what are they seeking out? Only what you can do for me. It's very telling who the crowds actually respond to say who he is. Herod asked the crowds, and they say John the Baptist. He was a good man, a righteous man, and a great preacher, but still a man. Elijah, a prophet known for his great miracles and power, but still a man. A prophet of old, someone who's a man who God sent as a messenger for his people. All three responses were religious. All three responses were supernatural. All three responses had a sliver of truth. All three responses were dead wrong. The unbelieving world has no clue who Jesus truly is. And because they have no clue of who Jesus truly is, they have no understanding of what it means to follow the king of kings. He has no authority. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is in the exact likeness of God. If doing is tied to following, the unbelieving world can't even do good because they don't even know who they're following. It's funny. We we, we can get into some theological debates later, but I believe wholeheartedly that it is impossible from apart from the gospel for anyone to do righteous or good acts that are pleasing to the father. Hebrews chapter 11, 6 and Isaiah 64, 6. But we see the heart of the unbelieving world. He's memeable. He's quotable. He's even wise. But I'm out on following because he has no authority in my life. The second identity statement that is made about Jesus is found in verses 18 through 22. And it says, now it happened that he was praying along and the disciples were with him. And he asked, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. 
But others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. Who do the disciples say that Jesus is? In the second occurrence, Jesus asked the same question as his disciples. Is he John the Baptist, Elijah, prophet of old? Jesus asked them what the crowd says, but I love how Jesus does this. He immediately turns it away from them asking just the crowds, and he makes it personal because his next response is, who do you say that I am? And I, I love this duality that Jesus does and what God does is that though he has the scope of the entire unbelieving world in view, he's always ready to make it personal to just us. It is, it is very, it is very broad, but then he's narrow right in on the disciples. And he asks them, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, the Christ, the anointed one of God. My, uh, Matthew's gospel says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my father in heaven. It's funny. Here, Peter had the right answer, but he couldn't show his work. What does this mean? Okay. So, so I love I love math. Anybody know me growing up? I love math. I was like a little little nerdy kid doing a little math games and stuff and trying to do math competitions. I love math. And, and one of the things in math class they taught you is that when you did the work, you had to not just put the answer because you wouldn't get credit. You had to show your work. Because here's a hack: if you're still in school, just cover your ears. If you look in the back of the book, you can flip to the back, and it just got all the answers in it. And so a bunch of people would just come over there, or you just tap on your neighbor and be like, hey, man, what's the answer? And then you put the answer. But the teacher knew that wasn't sufficient enough because you had to show your work. The disciples walked with Jesus but only had a partial view. They had all the right answers, but they couldn't show their work. They believed he was the Messiah, but they had an incorrect view of what the Messiah was. There's three things that a Jewish person expected from their Messiah. He would uh, do one of three things. He would bring deliverance here on earth. Uh, he could bring on earthly kingdom and would elevate Jews as God's chosen people. And he would come in power and not be weak or subservient. That's, that's, that's who they wanted. Now, I'm not going to lie. Studying this passage it scares me because those three things, I know the correlation is that all the promises are filled in the church, but that is scary because that is often the list that we look at as Christians. And they miss Jesus because they were, had this expectation of what they thought he would be. They wanted a conquering king. But he came as a meek, humble servant who died on the cross to save sinners. The Jews were too prideful as people, as a nation. It's funny. This is, this is the Jewish mindset. Man, God, please come save us from this wretched world. Save us from all the oppression of everyone else. It was not in their purview that he was not just going to save them from the oppression of the world, but from the oppression of their own sin. It's funny. 
share this. The gospel uh, called back to almost 20 years ago. And I called back and it wasn't, I was at a place of being 19 years old and I'm looking at the world, I'm looking at my circumstances, I'm looking at all the things around me and I'm looking for a savior. I'm looking for a savior to save me from all the muck and mire and all the bad stuff around me. And I remember this as clear as day is in my basement and as I get on my knees and God says to me clear as day, he says, I don't want to just save you from the world. I need to save you from yourself. I got to deal with the sin in your heart. And then we'll talk about your circumstances. So my question is, do you have a full view of who Jesus is? You may think Jesus is incredible. You may think he got some dope quotes. You may think that following him is cool, but you have a hard time showing your work. You may love the idea that someone has come to save you for your pain, but you have yet to come face to face with your sin. And you have yet to unseat yourself from the throne of your heart. Now, some of you may say, I get this often. You know what? You're a pastor. You're a pastor. You're supposed to say that. You're supposed to believe this. This is, this is your job. This is what you do. Here's the reason why I don't even like telling people what I do. And I say this, and this is not, I say this in the most humblest position. Everything that I do to follow Jesus was things that I did way before a title ever came. Way before I knew what church structure looked like. Way before I knew what even a spiritual gift was. I didn't even know. You're talking about fruits of the spirit. I'm like, you're talking about apples? Like, go to Kroger? I didn't know. But I knew that it was about following Jesus. Knew it was about surrender, and I knew it was about him dealing with my sin way before any of this came along. Let's go to the last identity statement. Luke 9, 28 through 36 says, Now about eight days after these sayings had took place with him, Peter, John, and James, they went up to the mountain to pray. And he was praying, and the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and the men were parting, parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. Who does God say that Jesus is? We've heard we've heard. Uh, from the spectators in the unbelieving world. We've heard 
from his disciples and his followers. But then the last identity statement in chapter 9 is God the Father stands up and says, I'll tell you who my son is. Now, it's, it's beautiful because this is a callback even to Luke when Jesus is baptized and the voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And so he's constantly reaffirming him. I love that. And this is not part of the message. This is not we can go there. But I love the fact that God affirms who Jesus is and his identity before he lifts a finger for him. Before he even does, his identity is cemented. And God speaks up again and says, this is my son. Now, now I know you can spin and camp out. I know I got some theologues and theologians here. I get it. And they're like, man, you went past this passage. You didn't bring up this. You went past this passage. You didn't bring. I, I get it. I get it. And forgive me. You can write emails and letters to Brian, and then I can just forward them to the trash bin. It's okay. <laughs> I get it. I promise you, we are expositing the message. The mountaintop experience, the mountain, the cloud that Jesus is here and Jesus radiant face are all a call back to Moses on Mount Sinai. Receiving the law and the instructions in the building of the tabernacle. Basically, on the top of that mountain, Moses received all the tenets on what it would be to have faith in God. Right after that, he receives the law and they understand what the sacrificial system is. It is the beginning of the Jewish faith. And what does Jesus do? He now takes him to the exact same place, exact same scenario, and says, well, here's a new covenant. And he stands in the place of Moses as Jesus. Elijah also being present is no coincidence. He has a couple mountaintop experiences himself, but Elijah is known mainly for his miracles and being taken up to heaven and never tasted death. All Jewish sects believed him to be the one prophet who will return at the end of all once victory was proclaimed. Both prophets are significant deals in the Jewish religion. Both, listen, in Christianity, they're big deals. I could throw a stone at the 20 billion churches down the street. And I, I could be second greater new faith tabernacle covenant. And if I bring up... Moses and Elijah, they're going to know who I'm talking about. They are a big deal. This is why the, the disciples responded the way they responded. How did they respond? They say, okay, we're at this mountaintop. We remember this is a call back to Moses, and we see Jesus being aligned with them. So you know what's the perfect thing we should do? We should make a tent in honor of all three of them. Here they go doing, but they're not sure who they're following. <laughs> God responds, this is my son, my chosen one. You listen to him. Moses was a representation of the first covenant, the law, and let's say he represents the past. Elijah represented uh, uh, God, what God could do through mere man and what was to come. So he represented the present and the future. The transfiguration was to show the true identity of who Jesus was, that he was the past, the present, and the future. God says Jesus' words are the final authority on the law and what God wants to do with us. What God doesn't want us to do, 
And he's the final authority on salvation. How you get back to God after you don't do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Revelations 22, 13 says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Jesus is greater than any person. History, prophet, miracle worker, great speaker, teacher, evangelist, apostle, doesn't matter. He is the final authority. This is why it's essential to listen to Jesus over all the other voices in the world. Constantly, we're, I'm telling people that they're like, man, you, you, man, like I, I heard, saw this video online and I came across this thing and they, they, they show me content and, and they show me this. And, and most of the time I just say, okay, man, that's amazing, but I want to point you to this book because you can read about this dude named Jesus. You can see all the stuff that he did. Go to the source. It's funny. Jesus is the authority on marriage. He's the authority on sex, finances, raising children, worship leaders, church leadership, how to serve the kingdom and how not to serve the king. Everything under the umbrella of life is under his ultimate authority. If Jesus is not the final authority in your life, you may find yourself being a fan of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus. When the follow, the doing lines up. Now, the father, God, head, clarifies and says, here's his identity. He says, now we can talk about doing. Let's look at Luke 9, 1 through 6. And he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And whatever they do, not receive you. When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as the testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I love that part. And I'm going to say it again, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I'd like to know y'all paying attention. Repeat after me. To follow is to proclaim. The two things that we receive after following the Jesus of the scriptures is purpose and power. I get this question all the time. Pastor, I want to find out my purpose. I need to know what God has called me to do in this world. Listen, everyone has an individual purpose in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to take that from you, but I'm going to tell you something. That purpose is fluid and can change. What that means is that what God called you to yesterday may not be what he's calling you to today. And when he calls you to today, he may not be calling you to tomorrow. It is fluid. But there is an unmovable purpose. Until Christ returns. What if I told you that you have the same exact purpose as the 12 apostles? You have the same exact purpose as the children of Israel. You have the same exact purpose as the early church and apostle Paul. And you know what that is? It is to bring glory to God. God told Moses in Exodus, which we see fulfilled in the Christians. He says, you keep his commands, you are a treasured possession. Through the whole earth is his. They will be a kingdom of priests and holy nation. Now, we see that reiterated again by the apostle Peter, which I believe is 
the life verse of this church, a living stones. He's called you to be a royal priest. What does it mean to be a priest? Well, the purpose of the priest was to atone for the sins so people could have access to God. So we as kingdom priests, we are to present the one sacrifice that can atone for all their sins. Who is that? Jesus. So if we're doing the work of a priest, it is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your purpose is to proclaim. What is your purpose? What is your purpose? What is your purpose? Now go do it. Next thing he does, he says, well, if I want you to go proclaim, I'm actually giving you power to do it. In Jewish law, a sender could authorize a messenger with full legal authority to the mission assigned to him. Jesus sent the disciples out not only with purpose, but in power. Authority to do the miraculous and in case casting out demons and healing the sick. We see a similar statement in uh, Acts 1.8 when he says, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you have power to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This is what I'll say on this uh, section. We see miracles and signs accompany Jesus and the disciples in their ministry. We see miracles and signs accompany the apostles. We see miracles and signs in the writings of the early church. We look all across America and the world in different countries and we see miracles and signs accompanying them. My statement is this. I have no reason to believe experientially or theologically through my study that the works of the Holy Spirit have ceased. And that means that God is still doing the miraculous in his church today. For his glory. But I'm going to add a warning. I'm going to add the warning. I'm going to add the same warning and the caution that they gave to magician and Simon in Acts. If you think the power of God is a way for you to gain glory, honor, and notoriety or money, may your money and your notoriety perish with you. I was at a retreat recently. And we had to talk about God's power. And in our alone time, this definition came up. God's power is the ability to perform mighty deeds and activities that reflect God's mission, his character, authority, and presence. His power is not a parlor trick. God's power is to equip the church to proclaim and to build up people to look more like Jesus. If God's power is not accomplishing those two things, it is not God's power. It is human striving for attention and distractions. To proclaim and have power. The next uh, to follow is to have compassion and trust. Verses 10 through 17, on the return, the apostles told him, all that they had done, and he took with them and withdrew apart to the town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned, learned in, leaned in, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who all need healing. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to the disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And he did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, Blessings over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set it before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up in the 12 basket and broken pieces. In Matthew's account of this story, it says, he looked upon them with compassion. The literal meaning of that word compassion actually is a word that we use that means to open one's heart. Christian compassion is love in action. What was the disciples' first response? Turn them away. And the reason why they said turn them away is because all they could see is what they didn't have. I I call that a Genesis 3 mindset. Genesis 3 mindset, when sin comes into the world, they see everything that they lack instead of seeing all of what God has provided. They have a Genesis 3 mindset. They're focused on what they didn't have. We're in a desolate place. We don't have enough money. Jesus says, watch me cook. (laughs) I'm often floored by the lack of compassion amongst the church. I remember going to this uh, rally for feeding the homeless and the bread in Washington, D.C., and this lady I know, she walked up to me, and she, she walked up to me with tears in her eyes, and she says, Calvin, Why is there such a lack of presence in these fields amongst evangelical Christians? I say that because when studying this passage, I'm also surprised and shocked by the lack of compassion in my own heart. I love this book. One author wrote, he says, when I am properly connected to the spirit, his compassion flows in my soul. Following Jesus is marked by compassion. When we're following Jesus, we don't see people as inconveniences or drags. But we see them as people in need of love. skip to the next chapter but truly the reality of it is is we see them as potential image bearers every single person is an image bearer but sin mars the image of god on them so when we proclaim the gospel all we do is begin to clean up the mirror so it can reflect the imago day of god so every single person every single where we need to see people with compassion because they are created in the image of god That may change the way our hearts love. The next is trust. The disciples have to obey Jesus when the evidence points to the contrary. Jesus does exactly what he does. What God the Father does in the wilderness is that he makes bread out of nowhere. Jesus multiplied what existed 
and allowed it to continue to every person is satisfied. There's so many nuances within this story, but I'm just going to focus on a couple. The beautiful part in this story is that Jesus didn't do it by himself. He provided miracles through the hands of his disciples. He said, you distribute them. So, so what we're imagining here is that the disciples get a firsthand account of the, the, the bread reforming as it enters. So they're watching firsthand the miracle of God. See, see they're watching firsthand the miracle. Here's the beauty of it. When God does miracles, he doesn't just have you sit and watch. He invites you to be a part of the miracle. He invites you to be a part of the miracle. All we have to do is trust. It's easier said than done. When we know and trust, the doing comes naturally. Knowing Jesus involves compassion and trust. Next one. And after this, we have one more. To follow is to take up your cross. Luke 9, 23 through 27 says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? For whom, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The disciples are looking for one thing, and what does Jesus do? He presents them with another. I, I, I'm a firsthand account of this. If you have any misconceptions about who Jesus is, he will correct those misconceptions ASAP. This scripture is probably one of the most misapplied verses that I hear people mention. Most people think that the call to self-denial is just a call to just stop doing the fleshly sinful desires. All right, we're gonna stop sinning. Mainly sin toward outward actions. We, we know we love we love our Ten Commandments. We love to just stay we stay away from those. We good. <laughs> Which I understand because the concepts are connected. The call to holiness, like this call, is for every Christian as believers. Our lives, the moment we get saved, we should have a pattern of decreasing sin and increasing in Christ-likeness. That is the pathway. But that's not fully what Luke is trying to convey here. I love one quote on it. It says, self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolates, cakes, cigarettes, or cocktails, or even other desires of the flesh, although it might include this. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness. The call to follow him and deny ourselves is to give up everything for him. Which this will include sin. Absolutely. But it also will include things that don't appear sinful. Sacrificing some dreams and desires. Some wants. So that Christ's love can be shown in your life. Listen, 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 listen. 
Can I talk? God did not save you just to elevate you. That is a that is a part of it. I get it. But God saved you so your life could elevate him. If I have one more conversation with a preacher, pastor, a person in ministry about platforms, I'm going to pull what left of my hair is out. I'm going to pull it out. Listen. Have honesty with you. God did not save you to put you on a platform. He saves you so your life can be a platform for him. As we deny our self-centeredness, then he says, pick up your cross. We follow Jesus and die daily is ultimately we're carrying to the cross that old man. Uh, that sin that leaks from our self-centeredness. One of the things I always say is that pride is the one sin that can block us from seeing all the other sins. It deals with the jealousy, the lies, the covetedness, and we put it to death as we carry the cross. If you have not begun to carry that cross, I invite you to that road, to the place of the skull. The last follow is to follow in power and truth. In Luke 9, 37 through 45, and he says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to the father. And we were all astonished at the majesty of God. Love that. And we all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they do not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Earlier, I talked about following resulting in power, power to do what, to proclaim, and to live out this Christian walk. But I left out something. Any power that we exude is not because of us, it's because of him who sits on high. Listen, we have this call. I want to tell you, we have this call, right? Constantly through our scripture, you see it, and we see it all in the culture, right? We have this call to look like Jesus, right? Meaning that we, we should look like Jesus in the way we proclaim. We should look like Jesus in the way we live. We should look like Jesus in the way we use our gifts. But never mistake looking like Jesus with being Jesus. It all points back to him. In the parallel uh, to feeding the 5,000, they trusted, but here they doubted. Jesus calls them faithless. 
It's much debate on was he talking about the, 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 the man and the family or was he talking to his disciples? I believe that he was talking to his disciples. And in this case, just like the feeding of the 5,000, once they were able to do, but now they can't do because they're not trusting and following Jesus. In Jesus' final words, he reiterates three times already, listen, I'm going to die soon. Listen. Everything that you do, everything that you do will be tied to following Jesus. The purpose, the power, proclaiming, compassion, it all is tied and connected to him. It's actually funny, uh, our, our church's foundational verse, if it, as it will, would be uh, one of our mission statements, we love God and love people. It's very popular in most churches. Jesus sums up all two of the, the uh, Gospels. And, and we teach uh, new members and we teach uh, leaders this. And I said, I said, most of the time when we think, we say we can just love God and love people. And people don't see it. I'm, maybe it's on a math head, but we miss the equation. We think we can love people and then somehow get to God. But it is a math equation, but we mixed it up. The reality of it is, is we love God, and our love for God allows us to love people. It fuels it. You're doing a lot of stuff. And you can find yourself doing a lot of things. Here's the point. A lot of people hear this, uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff, and then they think that, oh, man, he's just talking. No, I'm talking to ministry people, too. You can do so much in the kingdom of God that is tied to your identity. That is not your identity. Find your identity in your following. Remember, your individual purpose is what? It's fluid. It changes. If you find identity in that, it will fail you. What you're doing is following. It's tied to following. His mission ends in his death. And that's where the doing really begins. Um, I have one request of you. We tend to sometimes at the end of our messages at SLC, we, we have homework. Maybe it's got like school, so I'm going to give y'all some homework. I know you, you got Sundays, Sunday service, and then tomorrow you got to go to work, right? And you got a lot of people, and you're going to get back to doing a lot of stuff. You're going to go, you're going to get in your car, you're going to do some driving. You're going to go to work, and you're going to do some work, and then you're going to do some people pleasing and respond to some emails, some ones that's not so friendly. I understand your pain, my sister. <laughs> you're going to do a lot of doing. But I ask you, before you start doing, that you take a moment, and if you can't do it in the morning, do it tonight. Sit before God, open his word, and figure out who you're following. Figure out who you're following, because then I promise you, when you get up, the doing will make sense. Every time he calls you to do something that's countercultural, it makes sense. Every single time he's calling you to sacrifice and give up something that you didn't think that you could sacrifice, it will make sense. And it will, it, it, I promise you, the same way Herod looked at Jesus because he was perplexed, they will be perplexed. 
why in the world would he do this? Why in the world would he do and make these choices? It's because I'm following and not worried about doing. May God add a blessing to his word. Amen.